0: Well, we're in this, this series, of Life is Not a Sitcom, this is part, uh, part three, and uh, I, I said last week that, that the, what we're talking about are, are things we see in, in culture and in sitcoms uh, that aren't necessarily the way they should be according to Scripture, and some of these topics are ones that every one of us cares about but don't really want to hear uh, about it on Sunday morning, uh, but it's important for us to talk through some of these things. Uh, And what I'm trying to do is is put in contrast with us what we see prevalent in culture and how contrary that is to to what is biblical uh, and in line with God's word and standard uh, with the hope of providing us some correction, both in understanding and in behavior and how we live. Uh, and, And I'm trying to come up with a clip from a sitcom that introduces the topic every week. Uh, and so I did my best with this one. Um, it, 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 it's a bit precarious. Uh, I'm, try, I'm trying my best, though, so give you a little entertainment before we get into the into some stuff that uh, that we need to talk through. And so this clip is wrong at so many different levels. Uh, but but we can handle it. Daddy. Uh oh. Daddy's talking now. <laughs> Loneliness. The looming specter of Valentine's Day fast approaching. The two key ingredients to my favorite day of the year, February 13th, Desperation Day. <laughs> Weddings were forbidden under ancient Roman law, so St. Valentine performed them in secret under threat of death. And right by St. Valentine's side was his best bro, St. Desperatius, there to pick off insecure bridesmaids. Well, check out that one. Her body is a perfect ex. Play, play on. Ivy. Oh, Jupiter, what are your plans for me? Fifteen and still unmarried. And I thought Pompeii was smoking. Yeah. At so many levels, that clip is. So many levels. I want to talk this morning as-, as we look at this idea that life is not a sitcom. Uh, about a topic that uh, isn't talked about very much, especially in church. Uh, but I want to talk about sex and the sexual relationship uh, and why and how God designed it and what we've gotten wrong and perhaps how to get stuff right. Uh, I, I'm not going to talk about it in terms of uh, wants and desires and needs or anything like that. I want to talk about it from the perspective of the theology behind the topic, of the theology and doctrine of it. You've probably never heard it talked about in those terms before, but I want to keep stuff theologically sound and biblical. What I know is this, in nearly every sitcom, the standard regarding sex is this. Get as much as you can before marriage, because after marriage, It's either boring or neglected. That's the standard. This is a topic that most have gotten wrong for many different reasons. When there's been abuse in life, they're gonna get this issue wrong. And that's where some of you are. Things have been perpetrated against you It's very difficult to have a clear, healthy, biblical understanding of this. For some, there's just this overwhelming need inside to be needed and valued. And because of that, many people exchange a sexual encounter with a feeling of being valued. And they get it wrong. For many, if you've been the product of divorce, you've not grown up in a house that has seen this lived out well. And so you get it wrong. For some, the exposure to the entertainment of sex, specifically through pornography, is going to mean you get it wrong. Now, the truth about sex is this, that is a powerful, powerful gift that God has gifted to humanity. It's such a powerful gift that all through the Old Testament, I don't know if you realize this, our desire and commitment to God is put in terms of the sexual relationship between specifically a man and a woman. Now, let me explain that. All through the Old Testament, it's such a powerful gift that all through the Old Testament, faithfulness to God is spoken of and compared to in terms of a faithfulness sexual relationship between a man and a woman, husband and wife. And unfaithfulness to God is presented in terms of the unfaithfulness in the sexual relationship. That's how, like God knew that when he was gifting humanity with this, he knew this was going to be a driving force and a picture of something that's much deeper. The Bible acknowledges that humanity has a very, very strong sex drive. And that's one reason why this this issue, this sin issue is so easily fallen into because it just seems so natural. I was reading through the book of Jeremiah this last week, and there's a passage in Jeremiah 5 that just kind of reiterates what it is I'm talking about, about this idea of this sexual relationship pointing to a greater desire that should be in our hearts, our desire for God. Jeremiah 5 talks about, and this passage is talking about uh, humans chasing after idols rather than chasing after God. But the whole context of it is in the the realm of the sexual drive. And in Jeremiah 5, it talks about men pursuing idols as well-fed, lusty stallions. Now, you talk about any man as a well-fed, lusty stallion. That's only in reference to one thing. Right? But, But God's using that To say, look, it's such a strong desire. There's such a strong, what it really like indicates is that it should be that strong of a desire and a faithfulness to God, not after other things. Regarding this topic, here's part of our problem. Culture has convinced us that before marriage, there's a hyper focus on it So get as much of it as you can. And culture has convinced us that after marriage, it's often treated as a joke or something to be endured or neglected. And the sitcom life, culture, is the exact opposite of biblical instruction. In every area, this one especially. Culture encourages the indulgence of sex outside of marriage. And culture encourages and promotes the neglect of it within marriage. And the Bible's instruction is the exact opposite of it. The biblical instruction regarding this issue is the neglect of sex outside of marriage and the indulgence of it inside of marriage. But one thing we've got to understand the indulgence of the sexual relationship inside of marriage is not simply for sheer enjoyment. There's a deeper purpose to it than just enjoyment. We've got to realize that indulgence of sex outside of marriage has consequences, right? We also must realize that the neglect of sex inside of marriage has consequences. And while there's a lot of teaching about the the consequences of indulgence outside of marriage, there's very little to none about the consequences of neglect inside of marriage. Why? Because we've gotten it wrong. and We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to understand it other than for the sake of sheer enjoyment. Paul addresses this very issue. Did you know that? He, he, Paul addresses the issue of avoiding indulgence outside of marriage and, and celebrating indulgence inside of marriage. He talks about this. Did you know that? Do you know where he talks about this? 1 Corinthians 7. Now, the first part of 1 Corinthians 7 is a crazy passage. Crazy passage. I'm not going to go through the whole little passage. I'm going to do with one verse. But here, here's, what, here's what I know. Last week when we talked about tithing, I said Malachi 3.10 was one of the most disobeyed and neglected passages in all of scripture. And that is true. This is probably a very close second. What, what Paul writes in, in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 7. Paul addresses it this way. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. Now, he's talking about the husband-wife relationship in marriage. Don't neglect each other. Don't deprive each other, except for perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of (sighs) self-control. What I know is this, is that extremes... Breed extremes, even within the church. And this is what Paul's talking about. For instance, extremes breed extremes. In the extreme of the radical left, there's the extreme of the Christian right. Extremes breed extremes. In the extreme of an over-sexualized culture, oftentimes the result is the extreme of an under-sexualized marriage. And this is what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 7 in the Corinthian church. This is what the case in Corinth. There was extreme liberalism and illicit behavior and it flourished. And the church's response was an extreme asceticism and neglect. And what the church in Corinth was dealing with was in response to the extreme sexuality of the illicit culture of their day. Sound familiar? They went to the extreme of the practice of abstinence within marriage. And so Paul said, we have to address this because you're misunderstanding what sex is designed for and how it's to be celebrated. So Paul writes what he does in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 3 through 5 specifically. And he says, now it's okay for a time to abstain as long as that's by mutual agreement. And then he says, abstinence in marriage only has benefit as much as the husband and wife as a result grow in their devotion to God. And Paul goes a step further in this passage but he says, husbands, be considerate of your wives and wives, be considerate of your husbands. And this instruction to Paul from Paul to the church in Corinth was absolutely revolutionary for today. There was nothing like this that was being taught. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul affirms the fact that in marriage, sex is oftentimes neglected while outside of marriage, It's encouraged to be indulged in. And Paul says it should be the opposite. Now, to understand why God gifted humanity with this thing we call sex, we have to understand why it has been designed. There's an actual theological purpose behind it. This understanding has been lost or neglected or just flatly not talked about or taught in church. And as a result, our culture is facing very dire consequences. We've all gotten this wrong. Every one of us at some level has unwanted consequences because of it. And as I said last week, please hear me. As we say with finances, when parents don't get this right, their kids will get it wrong. I remember when I was a youth pastor, had this, uh, one of the families in, in my church, they had kids in my youth ministry. Great Christian family. I mean, committed, uh, sacrificial. I mean, all the things you'd check off the list, right? Uh, and uh, they had, uh, one of their daughters was in my youth group, and they were really serious with this boy. Um, and I had, and, and you know, as a youth pastor, what's the topic that always comes up at, at some level is sex. And this little girl In high school, she told me, she said, you know, my mom and dad said we love each other and we're going to get married, so it's okay. And see, this, this seems to be the prevalent idea, best case scenario of our culture's understanding of the sexual relationship. That when two people love each other and want to show each other the full extent of their love, we have to understand that sex is not not primarily an expression of love between two people. That's not primarily why God gifted it. Because here's why. Because you can love someone and not be married to them. And when we love someone and not marry to them and engage in this, it's simply entertainment. There's no covenant attached to it. So to understand this issue, we have to understand why God gifted us with sex. Now, here, follow me. First thing is this. Sex was designed by heaven, not by Hollywood. And to rightly understand sex, we must first rightly understand marriage. Okay? So one of the reasons we've gotten this wrong is because we've not rightly understood marriage to begin with. And so let me help us understand this. Marriage is the greatest earthly symbol of the relationship between Christ and the church. It's the greatest earthly symbol that God has given us to remind us of this relationship that exists between Christ and his people, the church. And all through the Bible we see this, where the husband is the representation of Christ and the wife is the representation of the church. Where the husband, as a representation of Christ, loves his bride and the bride respects and honors the husband as the church does Christ. Where the husband, as a representation of Christ, lays his life down and sacrifices for his bride and the wife responds because of the husband's sacrifice. And so we have to understand that marriage is the greatest earthly symbol of the relationship between Christ and the church. The other thing we have to understand about marriage is marriage is a covenant between husband and wife for a lifetime. A covenant is an unbreakable promise that cannot be taken back and cannot be severed. And what marriage is is the symbol of the covenant that exists between Christ and his church. And it's the the greatest earthly symbol of that relationship. And it's the greatest earthly symbol of the response from the bride to her groom, the church to Christ. And so this is the first thing we have to understand if we're gonna understand the theology and the doctrine behind the gift of sex, is first the gift of marriage this covenant, the best representation of this relationship that exists between Christ and his church. So then, sex is designed to be both the inauguration of the covenant of marriage and then to be the renewal of that covenant. Biblically, it's designed for marriage because of what it inaugurates, commemorates, renews, and reminds us of. Now, here's part of the problem. Anytime we talk to a younger generation about sex and to abstain until marriage, we talk about all the other stuff except for what it really is. We give them reasons except for this reason. Well, don't, because you'll have all these relationship ties that you won't ever be able to separate, and you'll have grief going on in the future. That's true. But abstain from because you know you, there's all kinds of disease stuff you got to worry. There's pregnancies you got to worry about. There's all this really, and those are all true. But the biggest, most important reason why one would abstain from sexual relations outside of marriage is because what sex does? It is the inauguration, and the commemoration, the renewal, and the reminder of the covenant that exists between Christ and His Church. How can you abuse that once you understand it? And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that renewal for a married man and wife should be celebrated regularly, but only in marriage. And so it's not surprising that culture's got this wrong because culture doesn't understand the Bible. Right? Right? It's not surprising the church has got it wrong because most of the church doesn't understand the Bible either. And so, because of the expression of the covenant of marriage, it means that sex is not merely entertainment. However, because God is good, He's designed it to be an entertaining covenant. <laughs> I thought that was funnier than you thought it was. Here's culture's problem. And, And here's our problem. We've separated the covenant from the entertainment, so we approach sex simply as entertainment. whether it's person-to-person entertainment or through porn or premarital or extramarital, when we separate sex from covenant, and it's not about the covenant anymore between Christ and his church and the celebration and commemoration of that, now it's simply about entertainment, great problems arise outside of marriage and within marriage. And that's why as a result Our culture often neglects the role of sex in marriage and celebrates the indulgence of it outside of marriage. This has profound and tragic implications. Because culture has separated the covenant from the act, sex is reduced to entertainment. And sometimes... In the engagement of that entertainment, babies are created. The problem with babies that are a surprise is surprised babies are not entertaining. (laughs) And our culture has moved so far away from the biblical standard that the culture now because babe, surprise, babies are not entertaining and sex is about entertainment. Now the culture feels right in killing them and government sanction them and funds it. So we've, we've got to realize how without a theological, biblical understanding of sex, we get into a lot of problems, Right? The truth is that most of us have treated sex with contempt, both inside of marriage and outside of marriage. And even in marriage, when, when you get this wrong, it's either something that's endured or something that's neglected. And when we get this wrong in marriage, it's not seen or experienced as the expression of the renewal of the covenant of marriage. And that's why Paul writes what he writes in 1 Corinthians 7. So as I said last week, in this area, as in all areas, God has the answer to our dilemma. In this area, as in all areas, God has the answer to our dilemma. God knows what we're like. He understands our propensities. He knows our pools and our and our habits, he knows our past, he knows what we're conditioned for in the future. And God always has compassion on us when we come back home, always. And so my encouragement in this area, as it was last week, come back home as quickly as possible. Isaiah 118 says, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. So whatever blessing that God would still have for you, whatever blessing that God would still choose to bestow on you, to do in you, to do through you by his grace, don't forfeit it anymore, come back home. As in most areas, especially in this one, most of us have those, I wish I wouldn't have memories most of us have those. I wish I didn't. Most of us have those. I wish we could go back and get a do-over, right? I really sometimes it just feels more comfortable to be silent because you don't want to like give you know a clue to anybody that you've ever struggled in this area. <laughs> if you've never struggled in this area, you're dead. So the question is, what do we do because we've struggled in this area? Let me just say that. I won't say if you are, because everyone will reject that. Well, no, I'm good now. It's so funny to me, and I just, let me just say this. It's so funny to me. The, the more, and more and more I talk to older men, like, "Nah, I used to struggle with that a lot. It's just not a struggle anymore. I'm just, I'm really maturing. It's like, no, you're not. You're getting old. You just have different temptations now. <laughs> it just, things just, so whatever the area is, what do we do about it? Specifically in this one, what do we do about sexual sin? The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in in the midst, they said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Interesting thing, one of them, is they were right, but they were half right because the law actually commanded both the woman and the man to be stoned. It's interesting to me that they just chose to bring the woman. Here's what I know. We like to level the law against people who are different than us. Had they leveled the law against the man too, it may have hit a little too close to home for them. We like to level the law when it suits our own agenda. This they said to test him because they had an agenda that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, y'all are right. So let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He said, you quoted the law right. I'm just going to give you some parameters around how you enact it. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Stop! <laughs> Don't do that anymore. You know, it's, 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 to me. I I look, I look through this passage, and it, just things pop in my head. And when when this group came to Jesus, they called him what? What was the title they gave him? Teacher. He's just some teacher. When she addressed him, she called him what? It's a profound difference in their outcome, depending on how you approach him. You understand? Profound difference in the outcome. It's interesting to me that when Jesus wrote down in the dirt and he stood back up, who was the group that left first? The old fellas. You know why? Because we got a long list, that's why. <laughs> we, got a, we got a long old list of why. Well, if people could be throwing stones at us, we're like, yeah, I don't need a reminder. I get it. I'm out. Please understand this. And this was this is part in part what Jesus was saying here. If your sin will be exposed and treated the same way that you expose and treat others' sins you will become very careful and full of mercy and grace toward everybody. Do you understand? (laughs) If we realize that our private sin would be exposed and treated the way we expose and treat other people's sin, We will treat people with great mercy and grace. That's what Jesus was saying. He's saying, You're right about the law. You got every right. I'm just give you some parameters. And so, to the extent you want to expose and judge, it's going to come back on you. So go ahead, y'all pick, thr- pick up a rock. It's interesting to me how this woman acknowledged her sin and affirmed the uniqueness of Christ all at the same time. Because when he spoke to her, she responded with, No one, Lord. That was in response to, has anybody left to condemn you? No one, though I know I deserve condemnation. She affirmed her sin, and she affirmed the uniqueness of Christ by calling him Lord That should be profound for us because of how Jesus responds. And Jesus responds to her as He will us if we respond in the same way to Him, full of authority and full of grace. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. When we come to Christ in the midst of our sin, acknowledging it, no one's left to condemn me, though I deserve condemnation, Lord, the one I submit to. We hear from him, though you deserve condemnation, I do not anymore. Now be different. See, what Jesus is saying here, and we have to understand this, he's saying this, I want me taking away your condemnation to be the motivation for you to leave that sin behind both in practice and in guilt. That's what he's saying. He's telling her, I want me taking away your condemnation for that to be the motivation for you to leave the sin behind both in how you live and now how you feel and see yourself. Free from action and free from guilt. talking to a lady after the first service who said this thing right here has been what has controlled and damaged her life since she was four years old things happened at four to her that's so damaged that even now she it, it set this, course of life that she lives with incredible guilt even though she was initially the victim and Jesus says I want me removing your condemnation to be the motivation for you to not live in the practice of sin anymore nor the guilt of it anymore The law says punishment is coming your way because you broke the law. The interesting thing is Jesus never changed the law. Punishment will still be leveled. And the law, the standard of the law is still in place. But Jesus did two things in his interaction with this woman. One of them was just profound to me. I just love this. Jesus knows that her guilt and condemnation will be transferred to him on the cross in just a few days anyway. And so I don't condemn you. I'm gonna take your condemnation. I don't have to stand here in condemnation over your sin because I'm gonna take it in just a few days anyway. So let me remove it from you. You never have to experience it. I'm gonna set you free from it. That's why he could say, I don't condemn you because I'm taking it from you. Your condemnation of your sin is not who you are anymore. I'm taking it. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He takes the identity. So he could take away her experience of it in the moment. And he could take away her guilt of it forever so she could truly be free. And then the second thing Jesus does was just amazing. Grace becomes the motivation for change. See, here's what it is. When I realize what, I, what could have happened didn't happen, that's grace. So it says go and sin no more. When we realize what could have happened didn't happen, and every one of us should realize, because none of us has reaped everything we've sown right? When it could have been so much worse. I understand you might think it's bad right now, but when you think how how bad it could have been, we all have those moments in our lives where we think, thank God it didn't get to, thank God it didn't grow into, thank God it didn't develop into Thank God there had been things that God, by his mercy and grace, has shielded us from. And when we realize what could have happened in its totality didn't happen in its totality, that's grace. And God says, I want the the grace that you've experienced to be the motivation for your change. I hope you, like me, have realized everything God has blocked from coming down on your life that you probably deserve, that I deserve. That's grace. And because of that grace, go and sin no more. Leave the lifestyle of sin. So in response To sexual sin. To all sin. But in this case today, sexual sin. Don't respond to others' sin in any way that you don't want your sin responded to. Do you understand? (laughs) This topic seems to hold such gravity to it. And rightly so. I mean, the Bible says that in every other sin issue, it's a sin against another person. But this one is a sin against ourselves. And, and, and that's one reason it's so hard for us to experience the freedom of Christ, who removes from, removes from us even the guilt of sin. Because it's a sin against ourselves, we carry within ourselves this feeling of guilt That is so much more profound than any other sin. But God's mercy and grace is so profound, it wants to remove even the guilt. we've We've all struggled with forgiving someone else who have hurt us, right? Right? We've struggled with that. How much more have we struggled with forgiving ourselves? And so God says, this is a profound issue, and I want to remove from you by my grace Not just the guilt over your practice, but the guilt you still carry. And so part of that is, let's not respond to anybody's sin in any way we don't want our sin responded to. Is that fair? Is that fair? So those boy Pharisees had to learn the hard way. That's why they put the rocks down. The second thing is this. In response to sexual sin, repent and rely on God's mercy and grace. Repent. That means change your ways and then throw yourself on God's mercy and grace. Because I believe there's still blessing and favor and renewal and rebirth of everything by God's mercy and grace, that he wants to bestow upon you. And so the prayer is this. Let me just give you a real simple prayer in response to sexual sin. God, I repent of my sin. Forgive me. Respond to me according to the fullness of your mercy and grace. In essence, what you're saying is, Father, I admit it, I repent, and I receive your forgiveness. And whatever your grace will still allow for me, whatever blessing, whatever favor, whatever renewal, whatever rebirth, would your mercy and grace would allow, I want it all. This is a prayer I pray over myself all the time. I want to encourage you to, and it's just basically, despite what I've done and in advance of what I do, Respond to me according to the fullness of your mercy and your grace. Father, whatever your mercy and grace will still allow, release me from the ongoing consequences of the sin of my past. Forgive me, renew me, and restore to me what I've sacrificed and restore to me what I've allowed to be taken from me according to the fullness of your mercy and grace. And help me sin no more. See, and the great thing about my God, the great thing about our Jesus is this, is that when we repent, we are forgiven and made new. That's just the fact. When any of us of any sin repent, We are forgiven and we're made new. Now, we might not feel made new right then, but the fact is we are made new right then. The Bible says you died to your sin. How can you live in it any longer? The fact is you can't because you're made new. So the fact is it has happened. You might not feel it, but it has happened. So then because you don't feel it, but the fact that it has happened, now we have to learn to live in that freedom and not be made a slave to it anymore. For those of us who are in Christ, we come to God in repentance. We are made new. Now, we have to learn to live in that freedom. Freedom both from the consequence, whatever God's mercy and grace will allow, freedom from the ongoing live lifestyle of that sin, and freedom from the guilt of it. We got to learn to live in that freedom, even of the guilt of it and not be made a slave to any longer, both in practice nor in guilt. Because God has said, Jesus has said, there is now therefore no condemnation for you who are in Christ. I want you to be free. See, so Here's what I know. God can reverse the consequences of any sin. This one included. But we must come to him first. And when we come to him, by God's grace, he will either remove the consequences, reduce the consequences, or by his grace, give us the strength to live in them and live through them victoriously and actually bring something beautiful out of it. That's his grace. And it is there for you even regarding this issue. That God in his mercy and grace is so profound. When we come to him in repentance, one of three things. Remove the consequences completely, which he can do. Reduce them or give us the strength to live in them and create something beautiful out of them. Do you understand? So, repent. Repent. Submit to Him and learn to live in the freedom with which you've been gifted. You are not a slave to your past. You are not a slave to what's been done. You're not a slave to what you've done. You're not a slave destined for that in the future. If you repent and come to Christ. so Let me just wrap up with this if you've come to Christ and repented, stop being and thinking of yourself who your your sin says you are. Stop living under the identity of your sin. Because if you've come to Christ, that's not who you are any longer. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So if you are in Christ and have repented, stop living under the identity of who your sin says you are and become who the Father has declared you to be. His son, his daughter, a new creation, free from the gravity and the hold of sin that used to control your life. Be who the Father says you are. I want you to pray with me. Father, there's no doubt that us in this place at some level have gotten this wrong for far too long. We've approached this gift from all kinds of other avenues other than what it is a commemoration and renewal of a covenant, the reminder of your commitment to us. Father, forgive us. Give us freedom. Remove, reduce, or give strength to endure, to see the beauty from the ashes because of your mercy and grace. Here's your turn. I'd encourage you. I'm not going to ask if you've ever struggled with this. I'm just going to say because you have. Let me give you the opportunity between you and God to come home. Say, Father, I repent for how I've abused, how I've mishandled this issue. I confess my sin and I won't come home. In spite of what I've done, in advance of anything I'll do, respond to me according to the fullness of your mercy and your grace. Whatever blessing, whatever favor, whatever renewal, whatever rebirth, whatever reaffirmation that your mercy and grace would allow, I want it. And I accept it. Tell them say, Father, help me not live under the identity of whom my past sin says I am. Help me to live in the identity of who you say I am. Your child, made new, a new creation, a pure heart, a pure mind. Father, help us live in the identity of a pure and purified child of the King. And for that, Father, we'll give you thanks. Father, I pray over my friends, I pray over our marriages, I pray over our kids, I pray over our families, that you would reverse the consequences that you would minimize them, that you would bring beauty out of ashes, specifically from this issue. And Father, as we see your renewal, as we see your beauty, as we see your rebirth, we will glorify your name. King above kings. Lord of lords. You've spoken over us your favor, and your mercy, Father. Let us live in it. In your name I pray, amen.